a beautiful Sunday out at Little Beaver. A lot of people out here having fun. Got Jamie here with me. I think you are our. Uh, I think this makes you our, our top you know, recurring guest on Pod BN. So thank you for coming. Is back this in. my third time or fourth time? I'm, I lost track. <sighs> third or fourth? Yeah, candidate. And you came in one time to talk about downtown, so I, I think it's third, unless I'm forgetting something. But uh, thanks for for dropping by. No, it's fun. I listen. I was uh, I was actually listening this morning to Justin and Monica. Um, oh, yeah. Probably two months ago. Yeah. You know, Monica is a good friend, of course, and, and Justin's this guy. No, I'm just kidding, Justin. And, um, no, they were having an interesting discussion, and it was just it's just fun listening to what people are talking about. Yeah. Well, yeah, both are um, – I like that one because both her job is really interesting, her take on the housing market, which is clearly a big deal right now. Yeah. But then also my biggest thing out of that was a book recommendation. Uh, she recommended this – book called surrounded by surrounded by psychopaths and uh it's about like a personality theory book and i'm really into that kind of stuff so i i, I read that and then i read like the prequel of it and so okay I so i haven't got to the it. very end of the podcast so it must have been at the very end because yeah. i i just got to the part where they were talking about how they work about goal setting and stuff so that was you yeah. know that's interesting to me too is just hearing different people and how they do that and how they do it yeah a lot of yeah. interesting people in the community so yeah I saw you and your wife Kelly were here when I came in. You guys have lunch here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I have been very vocal that Little Beaver is my favorite Cuban sandwich. Okay. Um, and uh, when Kelly suggested let's go to Little Beaver, I was more than happy to say yes and come and get a Cuban and, and grab one of the delicious beers. So yep. I just uh, I just had the raspberry cheesecake, which is it's good. And I really enjoyed it, but it's sweet, and I don't know that I could drink more than one of them at a time. So, uh, so I'm going to switch over to the Bro IPA, and we'll see how that goes. All right, sounds good. Yeah, I've got one of their new sandwiches on the way. It's got chicken and ham and pineapple. And uh, my last time I was here with my parents, my mom got it. I was gazing longingly over the table at what she had the whole time. I had the sliders, which is another new thing. That was really good, too. Four yeah, they just burgers. changed the menu up recently. Yeah. And um, I had a sandwich last week. God, what was it? Um, but it was ham. It might have been the chicken and ham one you're talking about. It had been a really long day, and uh, we'd been downtown for hours and stuff, and I just needed food. I was I was about to get hangry. And so Kelly brought me here that. and, yeah, sandwich and a beer and calmed down and you know, you just can't go too long without sussing it sometimes. But it's, yeah. it's, it's awful easy as a small business owner to ignore the needs of the body sometimes. Yeah. Well, I got one of those on the way, so we might hear it show up here in a little bit. But that'll just encourage me to let you uh, you talk more than me. So that works yeah, out. Yeah, absolutely. So clearly you're on uh, city council, big into downtown. I love talking about that stuff. But actually, the reason why I wanted to chat with you today is, is uh, board games. I've gotten into board games and we can talk about terminology on that too uh, but just in general like physical games i've really gotten into that during the pandemic i'm playing a lot with my kids part of some other groups and stuff too and that's your trade right that's a, that's what red raccoon does yeah i uh, red raccoon is um i tell people at central illinois largest game store um physically i don't know that we're the largest but i think with in terms of inventory and selection we're the largest, I think, by a pretty good margin. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we're you know seven days a week, and and during COVID, the board game industry saw 
across the United States saw a pretty significant double-digit growth. And, um, you know, my personal belief is a lot of that is with Zoom and um, everybody working remotely and stuff, we spend so many hours, um, or we spent, hopefully spent, with a, a, a past tense on there, so many hours working remotely that people are looking for things to do that do not involve screens. They spend all day staring at other people and staring at their screens, and they're looking for something to escape from that but still be able to socialize with their significant others, their children, their friends. So it's it's been a, it's been a really interesting year. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, so I was hoping we could talk holistically about maybe go like go all the way back right people have been playing games forever clearly as far as I know the oldest games are maybe um, like Mancala or Go like thousands of years old Uh, I think that uh, Senate is acknowledged as the oldest game it's it's, uh, I think it's ancient Assyrian and they think that they found a couple of boards that date back to 3000 BC okay I actually haven't heard of that game before. What's the like the general gist of it? I assume it's, it's like rocks and sticks in some way. Yeah, it's it's probably closest to Mancala okay. um, or an early version of a checkers style game. Um, yeah, but it was a basic. Uh, you know, it was basic. They used rocks as markers, and then they literally carved lines into stone to move the pieces around on to make a board out of it. Okay. Uh, Kelly and I had got lucky and, and, and had a vacation in Hawaii. And we visited an ancient Hawaiian temple. And at the side of the temple, you know, the whole village had grown up around there and it had been abandoned because their fresh water dried up. And so they moved, but they, the archaeologists there found remnant, remnants of an early form of checkers carved into the stone there, too. Okay. With okay. all the pieces still there. Yeah. So literally, people have been playing board games for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. And anytime you could get some kind of board made and some kind of stones to use as markers, you can design a game around it, right? Yep, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, cool. So is checkers going back that far then? Um, checkers and though? chess both go back um, before, you know, kind of into the BC, BCE era of um, history. Uh, a lot of people, to the best of my knowledge, chess came out of China. Um, ancient um, China, and I don't know the history of where checkers came from. If it was a poor man's way to play on the same board, if you couldn't afford more elaborately carved chess pieces, yeah. Um, I've never looked into checkers as much. So, but yeah, it, a lot of those have roots that, um, especially, trace back to very much to nobility in a lot of those ancient cultures as well. Mm-hmm. Nobility, because they would have had the leisure time to to play a game I think everybody else was working their butts off trying to make sure they had enough food they didn't to eat starve yeah. yeah yeah and food to eat housing heat and stuff you know yeah. lumber cut for heat and things of that nature so yeah nobility was were the only ones that had leisure time okay. at that moment in history so those are your ancient ones I'm assuming there's some ancient dice games too I think I remember when I, I went to Pompeii once and I think I remember some dice games in there being some of the stuff that they found. Well, they, games, they always talked about... Um, games of chance. You hear dice games a lot of times called knuckle bones, and that's because they were actually originally carved out of knuckle bones. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and okay. so um, they were originally carved out of the bones of, of vanquished 
enemies. Oh, so human knuckle bones. Yes, okay. human knuckle bones. Okay. And then if you couldn't get those, you'd carve them out of um, whatever animal that you happen to be hunting. And But they were literally carved out of bones. Yeah. And in and, and recent years, there have been some crazy, crazy expensive dice sets where people have said, these are carved out of woolly mammoth tusk, okay. right? So obviously been extinct for very long time and so somebody carved dice sets out yeah. of those tusks and sold them for like two hundred dollars per die wow none of those are in the the bin at your shop to, no. to pull out right <laughs> yeah. yeah no you might get lucky <laughs> and are any of those dice just for the record and none of those dice are also from your vanquished enemies right the, no the, the dice no in the no, shop. no no human bones no human bones no, no human bone dice at the store okay cool but yeah the um i think knuckle bones was it i read up on it once and i think it directly came from roman soldiers that they used to gamble all the time you know when they were a, a very early form of crafts uh-huh. um when they had downtime you know, from being soldiers. Yeah. So it's interesting to me to think about those two things because I, I not only enjoy board games, but I just enjoy thinking through the the game theory and the structure of them. How much information does each player have about what the other player is doing? How much randomness is it? How do you introduce randomness in limited ways? And so those are those things that we talked about: Mancala, Senate, Chess, Checkers. There's, there's not randomness involved in that. No. There's, there's the full board is present. It's set up the same every time. Two players or more are looking at what's going on, probably two players. Um, they can see everything that all players can see. Then you got dice where if you're just rolling dice, just doing craps, that's 100% just chance, right? Yeah. Um, so there, there's definitely games that are just solidly of chance. Yeah. So at some point, these things start coming together at some point you're you've got a board but you're rolling dice and then that randomness comes into the game somehow so yeah do you know when that started happening um no well not exactly you know kind of the early american history the you know one of the most famous uh board games of, of all time is is Monopoly. Yeah. And I was wondering that, if it was that recent. Well, like, it's like the 1920s, yeah. I want to say. Yeah. Um, you know, there were board games before that, but there's it's hard to track the history of them that, you know, maybe we have uh, you got some listeners that uh, are avid Smithsonian fans and they've got a better history of it, but yeah. a lot of it is not documented well in terms of being able to do internet research about it. Sure. Um, we know that there was older board games, but there's not a lot of information to find about them from, you know, you kind of go from the, the, the Dark Ages, the medieval period, where games were only for the nobility because they're the only ones who had time, to you get into the Industrial Revolution, and then um, people started having a lot more free time that at that sense. point. That makes sense. And uh, we know there were games that were in there that were played, but there's not a lot of documentation about them. Yeah. So nothing that endures to this day where you'd say, like, oh, in the, you know, the 1700s this was made or something. It's kind of like it really is sort of a, a modern thing in the 1900s with the Monopoly-type yeah. games. That, yeah, and Monopoly getting, like, was originally created as a political statement. Yeah, let's talk about Monopoly a little bit because i that's always the one that people bring up to me when I say I'm into board games and they say, uh, like, oh, yeah, we play Monopoly with our family. So it's, well, uh, it's got an interesting backstory all on its own. I've 
to please share. Well, yeah, Monopoly, I mean, the all the streets, all the properties that you can acquire in Monopoly are, well, and there's an argument. Some people say that the streets of Washington, D.C. Others say that they're from Atlantic City. Um, I've seen both sides of the argument presented very well, but unless you talk to the original guy who designed the game, um, it's kind of hard to, to tell which one it is. But it was very much a political statement about against kind of the you know the quote unquote the rich buying and acquiring property and and he intended it to be um, kind of an anti-monopoly statement and that completely backfired because that's not how people took it and then the game became widely successful um, and then of course he sold it off and it's it's been sold multiple times. And uh, to the point now where, of course, Hasbro owns it, which is one of the biggest gaming and toy conglomerates on the planet. Mm -hmm. And so it it kind of didn't work, I think, that the way that he wanted it to. So I've heard it being as like a lesson that this is how reality works. Like play Monopoly because then you'll learn how business and reality works. And the creator, it's the opposite lesson that the creator was trying to. It's like, look how brutal this is. Look how horrible it feels to accumulate all this and just slowly bleed dry all of your your weaker opponents like it's not a good feeling to to play that um unless you're a sociopath i guess well and a lot of people (laughs) a lot of people have very negative feelings towards monopoly because um you know one of the things that i've discovered is a lot of people don't actually play by the correct rules yes yes they play by the rules that an older sibling or their parents or a cousin taught them yeah but it's not the correct rules to monopoly because monopoly if you play it by the correct rules should never be more than like a 90 minute maybe a 2 hour game and you always hear people talk about these epic 4 hour battles and then somebody got mad and flipped the table and yeah and, and that's not what it's supposed to be. And the big rule that everybody skips is the auction rule. Yes, that's how I was just going to say so, that. So um, when you're playing Monopoly, every time somebody lands on a property, if they don't want to or can't afford to buy it, they it has to go on an auction. So every property gets into somebody's hands right away. And that really changes the game when everybody's holding everything pretty early on. Mm-hmm. And, um, so and you, you can also then, there's more strategy involved in it too, because if you need that blue one to complete your set, then you're going to bid real high for it. Other people don't want it as much, but they also don't want you to have it, so they're bidding against you too. So it adds another dynamic that's totally missing if you just do chance on those. Well, and that, and and, um, a lot of the house rules too, like um, you know, my family, we always used to put $500 in um, uh, the free parking area, so if you land at free parking, you got money. Oh, yeah. That's not an official rule, a monopoly. So a lot of times, a lot of monopoly games have too much money in circulation and again, that really affects the auction rule. So if you play the auction rule and you don't have that free money where you know people will say you pay your luxury tax and you pay all the fines in, in the game from the cards into the center, plus you put a $500 in there to seed it every time, if you're not playing with that extra money in there, it really changed the dynamics of the game too because there's a lot less money in circulation when we get to an auction. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting to me because I played both of those rules, but I grew up overseas, so it's, it's like widespread enough that it goes across the ocean that some people <laughs> nice. just learn these things, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, Monopoly has endured 
right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I want to say it was the late 20s that it was created. And yeah. so... 100 years now. That, yeah, we're coming up on 100 years of Monopoly at this point, And, God, there's hundreds of versions of it, right? Yeah. We just got Care Bear Monopoly into the store last week. Uh-huh. And my staff was like, you know, what the hell are you doing ordering Care Bear Monopoly? And sure enough, it started selling because there are there. people that grew up with the Care Bears that also love Monopoly, yeah. snatching it up. So so what I like about the game, th- there's things I like about it, and there's things that I don't. And maybe this gets us into um, my understanding, too, and, I, and I'm interested to make sure this is right, is that there was Monopoly started an American-era development of games, but then Europeans took a different track. Mm-hmm. And now these Euro games are coming back to the states and really influencing what we're doing now. Yeah. So what I personally like about Monopoly, I like setting it all up. It's a fun game to set up. You get the bo- you get the board out, all these little nice pieces that you have that represent things. The board is colorful. You deal out money. The money's colorful. There's lots of things to touch. Things moving around. You got the little houses you're putting down there. Like it's a it, it's very different than um, you know in contrast to chess. Right? Chess is Black and white pieces on a board, checkers. Black and red pieces usually on a board. Um, and the board doesn't really change other than moving the pieces around, right? Yeah. You might be, at this point probably not, but in the early times, every game of Monopoly you played would have been a unique game because no one would, no one's game would have panned out exactly like yours would with where all the houses were played and stuff. So. Well, so many combinations, right? Because. Yeah. Um, you're right that Monopoly, you know, and, and one of the things I always liked about Monopoly as a kid was being the banker, right, mm-hmm. and making mm-hmm. change and working with the kind of the money. And I think that as a, as a kid, that was very important for, I mean, I've had people that I've hired at the game store that can't make change, mm. right? It's like a skill that's slowly being lost as we've moved to this credit card era um, of, of the world we live in. And, but I always liked being the banker and having to make change for people and, and do that process, uh, going through that as well. It was just fun. It was, yeah. you know, um, the other game that you got to do that a lot in was, do you remember Life? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, that was another big one that was popular with me and my siblings as we were growing up. We grew up in the country, and in the wintertime, you get snowed in, and we weren't going anywhere, so we played a lot of Monopoly. We played a lot of Life, yeah. a lot of Scrabble. Uh, which is amazing given the fact that how horrible of a speller I still am to this day. <laughs> um, and we, we played a lot of uh, Rummy. That was a card game. That was a big sure, one for our family, sure. too. Yeah, life is the same way, right? When you set that up, big, colorful board. It's actually, the one I had was three-dimensional. There were, like, hills on it or something. Yeah, I don't absolutely. know if, that's, if that was standard or if that was a new That's the one I had, too. Okay, so I don't know if that's standard yeah. anymore, but... You the little cards. You put your little family in there. Um Illustrated the importance of having four or fewer children so you could all fit into a, a car together. <laughs> or could you get a bigger car? Maybe no, you, you couldn't. And, yeah. and it was funny you say that, too, because I'm number three of seven. Okay. So we had that. a big family, and it was, you know, my whole childhood growing up was, you know, we had the big conversion van, or we took two vehicles. Uh-huh. And, and, uh-huh. and if, we, if we didn't want everybody to cram into one van... Yeah, my we were, we're very spread out. So my oldest brother and sister were out of the house before the youngest two, but that still left five at any given time. 
plus parents. That's seven people in a vehicle, and that was never really fun on road trips. Really. Yeah, yeah. So we could learn something from from the life board game. Yeah. Yeah. I was the only. I, I I got lucky a lot because you know we after the van we switched to the uh, the family wagon, right? And I got the back seat to myself a lot, the suicide seat where you're riding facing backwards, because <laughs> I was the only one that didn't get motion sickness from sitting facing backwards. So everybody okay. else had to cram in the other seats. Okay. Are you uh, are you the tallest of your siblings? Or yeah. You, okay. All yeah, right. but um, you know, uh, Donnie, I'm six five ish now, right? I'm shrinking as I get older. My vertebrae is compressing. Um, Donnie is right behind me. He's six three. Phil six two. So okay. Most Not of the men in my family. family, no. Most of the men are over six foot. Most of the women are darn near close six foot. So. Okay. So you're not squeezing three people in the back of a sedan very comfortably? No, yeah. not at all. Yeah. Oh, cool. No, it's, it's very much uh, Irish and Celtic blood, a lot of corn and potatoes, and we yeah. all grew. So Yeah. Well, so to go back to the games, like those are the things I like, and I think those are the things you can see are very appealing about them when you're setting them up. Yeah. The yeah. things that I see as the game plays out that I don't like, I don't like um, – players being eliminated and not being able to play anymore that's a real bummer for a party right yeah especially in the way monopoly does it we're really just like you know who's gonna lose at some point but you still have to play it out for 30 minutes just to prove that that person's gonna lose but there's not really anything they can do to pull a fast one and like oh well you thought i was going after getting all the money but i was actually doing this and you didn't even know right um, Unless they get some incredibly lucky rolls yep. multiple times in a row. Yeah, it's just all luck. So. Well, and that's that's the big difference when people, you know, people who have never heard about the difference between American games, you know, yeah. which are often referred to as Ameritrash, or European games. Or is, Eurotrash, right? They're called that, too. Yeah, so, well, yeah. You, not as much. You don't hear Eurotrash nearly as much. But um, the big difference between those is... Um, player elimination. Most Euro games have no player in, uh, elimination, but there's a certain number of rounds in a Euro game. So American games go till somebody has vanquished and conquered everybody, which kind of makes sense with our culture. Mm-hmm. And Euro games are, we're going to play this many rounds, and at the end of this many rounds, whoever's got the highest score wins, but everybody's in it till the end. American games a lot of times have a lot more elements of chance, i.e. dice, like in Monopoly or in life, uh, with the spinner that they had in life, or the popper in trouble, or things of that nature. And Euro games tend to minimize chance. And if they do use random chance, it tends to be with uh, drawing cards. What card did you draw off the top of the deck? There are exceptions to every rule on both sides, but in rough, broad strokes, that's kind of the major differences. Euro or American games often tend to be more themed after something, too. So, for instance, Care Bears Monopoly, right? Is What does Care Bears have anything to do with Monopoly? Well, nothing at all. Um, but with a lot of tie-ins to books, movies, um, TV shows, and things of that nature happen on the American side that don't happen nearly as often on the European side. They still happen, just not as often. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, so, yeah, it takes some of those things then that... Uh, um, I think when you draw attention to them, people realize that they can be kind of a bummer. If, you, if you're if you at a party, four people, one person loses Monopoly, what are they doing the rest of the time? Um, Sit around, or, check their phone. Or if they know that... If you know you're going to lose... Um, <laughs> 
I, I heard this term recently coined by the new generation. I just love it. It's called griefing. Have you heard of it? Where yes. If you know you're going to lose and you just screw with everybody else just yep. to make it really unpleasant for them. Yeah. Um, and I, once I read that, I was like, yeah, I'm totally a griefer. Like, that's, <laughs> that's my strategy is things aren't going well for me, but I'm going to make this as miserable a process for everyone around me as I can, <laughs> which is not a great way to make friends. Um, but it is what it is. Yeah, it's going to make me think twice if you invite me over to play board games. Yeah, yeah. Um, so but before we get into then that the Euro games or the modern games or whatever you want to call them, um, one other thing I was wondering about historically was cards. Do you have, like, playing cards, a 52-card deck? Do you have any idea how far that goes back? I assume You know, I not. honestly don't. Yeah, I should have done it before I came in, but... Why 52, right? I, you know, that's the, the sets and everything. There's a political tie-in to the, the Jack, the Queen, the King, and the Ace as well. Um, but I I haven't done a lot of history to look up and see how far back those go. Yeah. I'm looking on Wikipedia right now, and if it's on Wikipedia, it's got to be true. So it so said there's some kind of Chinese playing cards going back to the 9th century in China. Um... But our modern deck, oh yeah, like it's it's. I'll have to take some time and just absorb this Wikipedia page and other things. But um, sorry, I'm distracted. No, All it's right. okay. Should've I mean, I think yeah, obviously <laughs> playing cards would have had to have been invented after you get some modern things like the nice printing paper. press. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. They got to be pretty. They'd be pretty modern because in order for paper to be cheap enough and durable enough to handle all that activity, yeah, that can't be something you have in like 30, 30 BC, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, maybe again, um, you get some gold plated cards or something for the uh, the Egyptian nobility way back in the day. I'm just making stuff up. I have yeah. no idea. Yeah, cool. I've never looked up playing cards. It's a really interesting question. Now yeah. I'm going to be at home tonight going, "Hey Tyson, go. I found this. Got found it. Yeah." So, uh, yeah, so then we get to so other games that come to people's mind that we played a lot around here. You mentioned a lot of them. Trouble or Sorry is a lot like that. Did yeah. you play that one? Um, we got some really horrible games in there, right? Yeah. Arguably the worst game ever created. Oh, what's, what's your High Ho Cherio. High Ho Cherio. Yeah. I have that, actually. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you, you've got little kids, and every every adult that has kids ends up with High Ho Cherio and like, I hate this game. Yeah. God, why are we playing this? I actually avoided... My mom played that with my son, and I, I ducked out, so I don't actually know how it plays. What's the mechanic? Is it just like total luck? It's it, yeah. God, I don't even remember. I just have I just yeah. passions of hate for it, and I don't even remember how yeah. to play it anymore. I'm, I'm repressing. I think there's something for kids where I played certain games. There's one that comes to mind called Feed the Kitty. It's just basically it just teaches kids to be able to read dice, take an action, and take turns. Mm-hmm. Which is a valuable skill to have. So as long as you're seeing it just as a skill building and socialization activity, it's fine. But uh, we well, got games like Candyland that the only oh, thing yeah, it was Candyland. was um, color recognition. Yeah, right. That's all Candyland was is color recognition. And then you got Shoots and Ladders, which was straight up luck, depending on your roll of what you rolled. And, yeah, yeah. Um, 
you know, as a do you remember Mousetrap as a kid? Yes. The game with a mousetrap yes. never, never went worked. off correctly. Yeah. It never worked the way that it was it supposed to. It would always be like that one piece of cardboard that's bent. You just knew on your game, like, I got to put my thumb, like, on that spot. Otherwise, the, the you know, bathtub will tip proper, improperly and the marble will Or your siblings lost later. one piece and you're like, well, we'll just make it work. We'll make it work Yeah, somehow. we'll make it work. Yeah, put a yeah. toothpick in there. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of those games from the uh, so like 60s, seven, 70s, and 80s, 80s, that was a lot of when we were, when Parker Brothers was still kind of a major player in the industry. Industry. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when we were when we were kids, it was Parker Brothers, Mattel, and Hasbro, and um, uh, Avalon Hill was another big player back then too. But Avalon Hill focused mostly on war games. Everything was a reenactment of Guadalcanal or a reenactment of, of of Gettysburg or. You know, so everything Avalon Did they do Hill, Axis and Allies? They did. Okay. Uh, yeah, they created Axis and Allies, which, you know, World War II. Okay. Um, and uh, a lot of historical-based games. And, you know, you get into the 90s, and Hasbro gobbled up Parker Brothers. They gobbled up Avalon Hill. And a lot of those games just disappeared for forever. Okay. You know, you just can't even buy them now because if it wasn't a high-performing game, they wanted the high-performing games like an Axis and Allies and all the ones that didn't sell well that those companies kept going because they sold just enough. Um, Hasbro just killed them all. So when they bought Avalon Hill, Avalon Hill had something like 70 games in production, and I think that Hasbro makes like five of them at this point. Interesting. Is Risk one of those two? Yep. Okay. So again, you think about these games, and I know we're throwing out a lot of titles here, but my assumption is with all the games you mentioned, most people listening to this, if they grew up in a American culture at all, yeah, they would have seen and know what these games are. And well, a lot of them came out and they were out for the seventies, eighties, nineties, right? So anybody that was in their, their younger yeah. years, right, call it eight to early teens in that period of time, would have played those same games. Yeah. Yeah. They just came came back with a different box and a different you know updated packaging, but it was the same game over and over again. Yeah, and again, things I like about those Mouse Trap. You didn't say Clue, but I think Clue would be in there oh, too. Oh, absolutely. Um, Risk, Axes and Allies, all these games. What do we like about them? Got a nice board. There's unique play. Um, Nice, colorful items of different shapes, right? Very, it's a nice tactile experience that you're mm-hmm. having with it. Um, it's a game also that people knew. Like, I remember in even elementary school, you just would see them over there. You could just grab them, open them up. You didn't have to walk through and explain all the rules, right? People yeah. all knew the rules together. Yeah, I, think, I think Risk is from the early 50s. Clue is from the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, and they were around. You know, And not everybody liked Risk, um, but it's been around as a tactical game for you know, 70 years at this point. Yeah. I, I didn't like Risk when I first played it, but either we, either we didn't follow the rules or they updated it to avoid this. But newer versions I played avoided that slow bleed thing where I talked about where if all you had was Australia and your opponent owned the rest of the world, like clearly you were going to lose. But 
now if you could collect enough cards, you could really get some force and try to like push through things. Yeah, try to break out. There was still hope for you in the end, you know. It kind of made it made the game resolve quicker than. Well, there was always just that one path into Australia. So if you could just bottleneck that one path, nobody else could put enough pressure on you (laughs) to get through that one pass. To do it, yeah. But some of the newer versions of Risk now that there's there's multiple paths into Australia. Oh, you could get out to get into Australia. Yeah, and so that makes it so that it's a lot harder to turtle and hide inside of Australia and wait until you built up a big enough army to get out. Yeah, yeah. But I, so I'll say I, I, I did those games, then I started to get into video games a lot. Mm-hmm. Didn't follow the board game scene at all for, like, you know, probably late 90s through, like, mid-2000s. Just didn't, didn't pay any attention to what anybody was playing, and I... I liked playing games okay, but the fact that they were elimination-type games, the fact that they could drag on so long, not appealing to me. So I'm trying to think of the first Euro game that I played that really opened my eyes to a different way of, of, of working. I, can't I think the first big back. one that what, hit what, what was, what, was from your perspective. What, what started to get popular? Around yeah, there? the first big one, the first worldwide breakout was Settlers of Catan. Okay, right, which that I think won Game of the Year. Oh God, I want to say it was 2007 or 2008, something like that. Yeah, and you know this is a game where um, it is now sold. Uh, the last number I saw was 19 million copies. That's a lot of, of a game. And it was the first one. It still has some of that luck factor brought into it where... Um, there's some uh, dice rolling There's some there, dice yeah. rolling in there. But there's no... They, it, they got rid of the player elimination. And you can legit have a shot at winning all the way to the very end. And yeah. that was the first big one that I remember, kind of. And, and a lot of people would consider that kind of the start of the modern era of gaming. Yeah. So and I've I've heard it. Uh, I've heard it both called Euro gaming and modern gaming. I usually call it modern because there are associations with Europe that it's like, like people can have negative associations with saying something that's European. And I don't think there's anything. European about the games. It's just that the games, it's not like they're written in French or something. Just, just that it was designed in Germany, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, Catan is from Germany? Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And then you um, get Carcassonne was a huge breakout right after that. That was mm-hmm. a, that was from France because it's set in Carcassonne, France. Yeah. So let's um, talk about, sorry, let's talk about Catan real quick if people don't, if people haven't played it or maybe if they've heard the, the term and they haven't played it before. Okay. So, like what, what, how does that game? How is that game designed to be a Euro game and not an uh, American game? Well, I think the first thing to know in Catan. So, so basically, the concept behind the game is that um, during an expansionary period of time, you know, if you think the expansionary expansion of Europe, we found an island. And everybody is vying for control of who is going to get to control this new island named Catan. And so it is an expansion game where you're building cities and roads to control and generate victory points. At the same time, the only way to do that is by resource gathering and then trading of resources with your fellow players. So there's a lot of give and take in the game of when is the appropriate time to buy, when's the appropriate time to sell, 
um, in order to get the best value for your resources and maximize what your end goal is trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some dice rolling in there to determine each round. You know, you can, with, with the roll of the die, uh, 2d6, of course, means that you can get any number from 2 up to 12, and the most valuable um, properties to own and have a city near are, of course, the 6 and the 8, because you're more likely to roll those numbers than any other numbers in the game, with the exception of 7, but just like in crap, seven's a bad number. So you don't want a 7, you want a 6 or an 8. Um, or a 5 and a a 9. Those are great numbers, too. And during any person's turn, they're going to roll the dice, but you could generate resources from that die roll if you control a a village or a city near there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the big thing that it did was, like we were talking about, it got rid of player elimination. Everybody felt like they were in the game and had a shot of winning right up to the very end. Um... As long as they managed to get a couple of properties that were on good numbers that were rolled on a regular basis. And then you get games, you know, there is a luck element because you can get a game where you're like, I control the six and I've got it right on this this forest that I want. So I'm going to generate forest every time a six is rolled. And for whatever reason, that game, nobody rolls a six. And yeah. that's happened to me before, too. Yeah. So there's still a luck element into it, but it really, it was a, a nice quality Production, a nice quality game of these um, hexagons that they put together. And um, everything about it really just gelled together into a really solid game. I think something that's important about the game, too, is that you just have these hexagon shapes that represent the land, and those get recombined every time you play. So So the board's always different. It's not just a set board, but yeah. So you can either do it deliberately or randomly, Mm -hmm. right? Um, There's a recommended... Starting set. starting set. Um, and then you can just randomly shuffle them up and deal them out, and yeah. it makes a different game every time you play. Last time I played, my uh, my friend Carl made fun of me because I, I set up the, the recommended starting option. And he was like, um, his attitude was like, this board has been used many times. You don't need to set it up according to a certain pattern. Like we know we're doing. <laughs> you're, you're clear. I was like, well, I've been playing with my kids, so we go with the standard set. But if you, just so people know, if you go into your like, Catan game and you, you, you feel like you need to lay down the standard set, the, the veterans uh, can make fun of you for that. So I, I, I figured this out recently. Yeah. <laughs> In a good-natured way. It's just a gentle ribbing at that point, right? Yeah, it was fine. But part of the fun. Um, Something else that I think is cool to point out is that everybody is playing on every turn. So the person rolling the dice whose turn is is, they have most of the action they're doing, but there's still two things you're doing. One, you're collecting resources. So if you and I are playing and I roll a six and you have that control of that space, you get the pieces during my turn, just mm-hmm. like that. And then there's also the nice trading element, too, where you get to barter for different pieces. Uh, yeah. So if, I, if you've got a bunch of wood and I've got a brick, I need some and wood. And I know I can, that you need the wood. Yeah. I'm going to hold out for as much as possible. Yeah. We can try to but we can try to have that conversation like, hey, I'm looking for some wood. Jamie, you give me two woods for this brick? And then we can go back and forth like that. So. And it, which has become its own meme all by itself, which is, you know, wood for sheep or wood for, for wood for grain or things <laughs> of that nature, right? Yeah. So yeah. Um, you see the wood for sheep one out there the most of the time. 
Um, and it's interesting too that Catan is a, a is a game that is taught in a lot of junior high schools when they're talking about that expansionary period of expanding and trading and things of that nature. Um, that even even here in Bloom, Bloomington Normal. I know many history teachers will use Catan as a way to reinforce how the world worked when we didn't have a a, a unified fiscal system. Oh, interesting. You know, when we're yeah. trading, like, well, what's important to you? Well, I've got a lot of wood, but I really need that clay to do this thing with it. So I'm willing to give up a bunch of wood to get the clay right now. And that's, that's the world that we used to live in during the 1700s of European expansionism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So a lot of history teachers will use Catan to reinforce that lessons with their uh, their students. Interesting. Yeah. There's a, definitely an economics lesson in there, too. Um, there's something on a John Stossel program one time where he talked about why why when you go in a store, like if I go into your store, Jamie, and buy a board game from you, I give you money and you say thank you, give you give me a board game and I say thank you. We're both saying thank you. Theoretically, the board game and the, the dollars should, that, that's, that's the price of the game, so we should be um, ambivalent about, if that's really the price of the good, then I don't have a preference between money versus board game. But I have money and I, I don't have Catan. You have extra copies of Catan you don't need, you would like money, so we're actually both benefiting from it because I that game's worth maybe more than what's the price tag on it? $50 something like that $54 yeah so that game's worth more actually more than 50 bucks for me so I'm gonna grab it game's worth less than 50 bucks for you because it's sitting on your shelf and we everybody comes away happy yeah so that's I think that's why we say thank you like that as we are yeah. ending the transaction everybody's happy, happy. yeah yeah and that's that's something else you can learn through that dynamic of trading in Catan too, right? It's like um, I'm ecstatic to get some wood because I don't control any wood spaces. You're just overrun with wood. You don't really care if you have any of it at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, there's a there's an adversarial aspect in the game you don't have in, in commerce as much. But and I think still. there's a lesson to be learned for for kids and adults that if we can figure out how to create a win-win situation and everybody walks away. At least not mad, yeah. right? Everybody benefits from that scenario. You yeah. know, you may not always be happy with everything that happened, but if you're not upset at, that you were just, you know, taken advantage of somehow, then, um, you know, I think it can help shape discourse and, and make for a more civilized society. Yeah. We can, and I, I, that's one of the things I love about board games too is the they reinforce uh, a lot of social dynamics. You know that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an avid video game player, too. Uh, and you can play a video game and you can join up with a random person somewhere on the Internet. And, you're, you know, you could be cooperative and, and never even talk to the other person. And it, it's great. But you can be adversarial. And, um, you know, you could, be, you could be the recipient of some interesting um, uh, vernacular <laughs> as you're playing the game. Because when people are talking on the internet um, or chatting or whatever it is, they feel far more uh, loose with their language and the ability to verbally accost somebody than when you're sitting across the table from them. You really can't do that. People don't feel comfortable that way. Well, and also the fact that in a video game, the game controls the application of all the rules and the points. And 
something about a board game, especially a more complicated one, is the rules exist as a contract between the players. Go back to that Monopoly game, right? The, the, the Monopoly house rules that you have about putting the money in the middle. If everyone agrees that's the rules we're going to play by, that's the rules you play by, right? And, and there's a, a rule book, and they can be they can be thicker and denser than you might like them to be for some of these games. You all kind of hold each other accountable. I'm going to put this piece here. Oh, actually, you're not allowed to put that. You're not allowed to put a, a blue piece next to a red piece. Oh, I didn't notice that. Yeah, I'll pull that back, right? It's a, it's a yeah. communal experience, and the game emerges from that that community of people that come together at that time to do that thing. Versus a computer saying a hard line of, like, no, you're not allowed to do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, a, it's definitely a social skill that's, that's taught in these things, so... Well, and there's there are so there are games where cheating is encouraged. So if you can get away with it and nobody calls you on it, you uh-huh. know, Munchkin is of course famous for that. If nobody calls you on it, then um, you just kind of go for it and, and run fast and loose with the rules yeah. until somebody catches you. Sorry, just a minute. Oh. Okay, never mind. Um, I haven't heard of Munchkin before. Tell me about that one. Oh, Munchkin is a quick and silly um, kind of a, an entry-level card game into kind of this tabletop world uh, created by Steve Jackson Games. Tons of expansions, tons of spin-offs. Um, the artwork is very cartoony and just a ridiculous amount of bad puns that exist in, okay. on the artwork and the cards themselves. And it's, but it's a very simple game of everybody starts off as a level one character. On your turn, you you draw a um, you draw a monster card. So you're exploring a dungeon. You draw a monster card to open the door and see what's in there. You get a monster, and you you either have to defeat that monster or run away. Well, that sounds pretty cool. I I haven't checked that one out. I'm looking at it now. I haven't even seen the uh, the image of that before yeah when you're in it's it's interesting too because um cheating is encouraged if you can uh figure out how to get away with something go for it yeah um you can barter with people too so that if you're fighting a monster um and the monster says it's going to come with three treasures i could say uh, hey tyson if you help me this round i will give you one of the treasures but but you could being an astute player you could hold out and say um i want first pick of the treasures and then we could barter of who gets to pick the treasures in what order and and things of that nature and then if you help me maybe we can defeat the monster together at the same time you know if uh, let's say Justin was here Justin could jump in and be a spoiler and say I'm not letting you guys win that treasure and he could do something to help the monster so it's a it is a game of creative partnerships and backstabbing Okay. Uh, and awesome. it's uh, it's quick and it's fun and um, it's interesting because it, it's it shows up on a lot of best family games. There's many themes to it, you know, vampire munchkin, regular munchkin, zombie munchkin, uh, star munchkin, um, do the good, the bad, and the ugly munchkin. I mean, all sorts of themes around this game uh, from Steve Jackson Games. I think it's it's like 2001 maybe it came out so it's going on 20 years old it was 20 years old this year and um, a lot of gamers look down on Munchkin as like it's too simple but it's a lot of people's first entry into kind of this bigger world of tabletop tabletop gaming yeah cool um 
Yeah, so going back to Catan, then when did that start getting popular? Was that in the 2000s or was it in the 90s? Um, it really, I think it, well, I think it won Game of the Year. God, I, I wish I had looked this up. I, won, I think it won Game of the Year in 2007 or 2008. Okay. And once it did that, um, that's when it really went worldwide. It got, you know, it started off big in, in Europe, and then it really started getting American uh, publishing. Oh, all right, I, I just Googled this on my phone real quick. Catan uh, leased in 95, so it's even older than I thought it was. Okay. But I don't know when it came to America for the first time. Yeah. And uh, because board gaming is far bigger in Europe than it is in America. Um, in America, it's a quickly growing pastime especially with, you know, in the COVID world that we saw last year. Um, but it still dwarfs, we're still dwarfed by uh, Europe in terms of gameplay. Yeah. And to put that in perspective, the biggest gaming convention in North America right now is Gen Con, which happens in Indianapolis. So it's only like three hours away from us. Most years I go to it. And I think Gen Con had their biggest year ever in 2019, and they, they sold 72,000 tickets. That's a, that's a pretty good-sized show. Until you compare that to Essen, which is the biggest board gaming convention in Germany, and Essen had 145,000 tickets at the same period of time. Um, Essen, you know, Gen Con is pretty much in the Indianapolis Convention Center, spills over to a couple of hotels, and now they use the Lucas Oil Field where the, where the, uh, the Colts play. Essen is basically takes over the entire town. It's every hotel and the convention center, and it's everywhere. So, yeah. you know, when you, if you go to Essen, I've been told that you have to plan um, what you're going to game based around travel time to get from one venue to another venue to, to check out the next game. Yeah. So, oh, man, that'd be really cool to go. Oh, I would love to. It's, I, it's on my bucket list. Yeah. I want to check out the one in Indy, though. I, I have never, haven't been to that. You know, once I got into this, everything shut down. So, uh, it's, so. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a spectacle to behold, yeah. right? What is, is, it, is it like what you envision a comic book convention or being, is, is it that kind of vibe, like booths and... Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's um, it is a huge trade floor with booths and exhibits and things of that nature. It is also a massive area set aside to where you can sign up and say, "I want to play this game." Sometimes it's a learn to play where you've never heard of the game before and you just want to go check it out, and you can go and, and sign up for time to go play. Other times, there's a lot of tournaments that happen there where you've got a specific game that you're really good at that you really enjoy, and maybe you sign up to play in a tournament and compete against other people who also love that game from all over the United States. Um, There's a huge geek culture aspect to it, so there's a lot of cosplay that you'll see while you're there. I was going to ask if there was any... uh cosplay or people dressing up as, as characters absolutely huge contest a uh, huge costume contest is usually on Saturday night and people just are amazingly talented at creating yeah. some of these outfits that they look like the originals from whatever movie or show that they're copying people yeah. are just amazingly talented at this and then I you've also really, got I, I used to not have an appreciation for that I'll say um, it seemed like over the line to me of how much time people are spending on these things. Mm-hmm. But as I've learned more about the passion and the skill 
and the the amount of like energy and commitment that it takes to design these costumes that people make it's it's absolutely remarkable and well beyond anything I could ever do with my skill set and the yes exactly the the sewing skills the needlepoint skills the fabrication skills that go into these people especially like the folks I think a lot of people have seen um, the 501st Legion, the people that dress up like stormtroopers and, and from Star Wars. You know, most people have seen the 501st Legion, and but still the skill to fabricate your own set of stormtrooper armor is huge. Yeah. And then you get some of the most witty mashups that you've ever seen. Let me give you an example I saw just this morning because this weekend is Dragon Con, which is a huge one in Atlanta, Georgia. And it was a lady, and she was... It took me a second to get it. She was all in greens and golds, and she had on the Loki horns, because, of course, we just had the Loki TV show on Disney+, Plus. Loki being Thor's brother. And I realized she was a stewardess, and she was the Delta variant from the Loki TV show was variants, and she was a Delta variant. And I was like... She was even pushing, like, a, a beverage cart, and I was like, I just started laughing. I'm like, that is brilliant. That is so good. That so witty to come up with that crossover <laughs> like that. Yeah. That is so topical and to be able to execute it in that way, man. Yeah, That's I've awesome. seen some amazing mashups of um, you know pimp stormtroopers and you know where they're their whole stormtrooper armors in in pinks and purples with a big you know mm-hmm. pimp daddy hat on and stuff. And yeah, just, well, I think there, there's some. There's some costumes that aren't physically possible, right? Like, you can draw a comic book or put it in CGI, but it actually wouldn't be a a costume that anybody would wear. And so then that, to me, is another level of creativity. So think about, like, Spawn, right? He's got this cape that is alive and constantly moving, or how do you, how do you make a, how do you make a cape that looks like a Spawn cape in an authentic way that will generate that image of, of movement, as an example, it's a uh, it's phenomenal creativity. Yeah, well, and I'll give you an example too from one of my staff members. Um, his daughter went to and she designed the, this entire costume, and, and she placed pretty well in the Gen Con costume contest. Where um, I think a lot of people have heard of Doctor Octopus from the Spider-Man TV show, movies, cartoons, oh, and everything. Did he have tentacles? She did a steampunk Doctor Octopus oh, with all of the tentacles being kind of like steampunk gears and everything that controlled them all. That's and cool. they all moved. And uh, coincidentally, she was in high school at the time. Coincidentally, she just graduated from Rose Holman with a degree in engineering. So, sure. Yeah. Yeah. She was, it was a, you know, there was a life path that was already being set there that I don't think that anybody realized at that point. But as somebody who went to Rose Holman for a year, it sounds like she would fit right in. Oh yeah. Yeah. Again. Yeah, she worked at the game store for about a year until she left for college. Yeah. And that wasn't a diss. Like, that wasn't a backhanded compliment. Like, No, amazing engineers coming out of it. Amazing there. engineers with creativity and personal passion for what they do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, not I'm not sure where she's at right now. She was working at, a, a, interning at a nuclear power plant for a while, yeah. and then she just graduated, and, and I'm not sure where she landed at after, after graduation, but yeah. very smart lady, very smart. Not, not the for my personal situation. Not the kind of place to stick around if you're not 100 percent sure you want to be an engineer, though. Because 
pretty pricey, pretty hard. So I yeah, well, went went a different route myself. Yeah, (laughs) she's gonna. I think she's gonna do amazingly well for herself. Yeah, cool. But it's that passion that people bring to kind of geek culture, even if it's just. you know, I mean, some, hell, some of the tattoos that um, locally we're seeing, right? Illinois Tattoo Company in downtown Bloomington. Um, the owner of Illinois Tattoo, or at least one of the owners, I'm not sure if he's a sole owner, Chad. Chad is a huge Pokemon fan. And I've seen some tattoos that he has done for other comic and Pokemon um, people. And the tattoos are just absolutely amazing that the art style that kind of this bigger acceptance of geek culture has brought out mm-hmm. just the tattoos are amazing the cosplay is amazing um, and some people just represent it with um, enamel pins on a backpack and just expressing themselves however they want to and it's yeah. just you know I, I think a lot of times when I was growing as a kid people hurled geek and nerd as an insult and now it's just like yeah, yeah. I'm part of the majority now, yeah. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Um, I assume that's a barrier uh, if people come into your store or a barrier to them even coming into the store, a perception that there's a culture there, there's a, uh, a group that they, they don't want to be, <laughs> maybe they don't, they don't identify with, they don't, maybe don't want to be associated with, they've got some misinterpretations of things. So um, do you ever have to kind of work people over that idea that... Uh, some people welcome there. <laughs> some people. I remember, you know, um, when I was in negotiations to buy the game store. Ken started it in 2007, and then we got to be talking, and I was in negotiations to buy it. Kelly and I bought it from Ken and Christy in 2014. And when I was doing this, a lot of people in, you know, I'm in, I'm in Sunrise Rotary in town, and a lot of people were very confused, because at the time, I was a partner at Mavidia Technology Group, and they're like, you're the, we're, you're the biggest computer nerd we all know, and you're buying a board game store? And um, they really couldn't understand why I wanted to leave a successful computer business to, and, and, and do something different. And for me, a lot of it was... You know, I, my response was, where do you think all of my guys go when they're done fixing your computers all day? They need to decompress away from computers and they, they want something else. They want another outlet for their passion. A lot of times that was either board games or video games. And so I went the board game route. And we've tried to build a culture of acceptance, of this is a safe place for anybody to come and you're accepted here, and if you don't know all the rules right now, do you want to have fun? Will you play a game with me and have fun? And that's the culture we're trying to build. I think we've done a pretty good job of it at this point, too. I think that The Simpsons um, did some disservice to the industry at, at, sure. as a whole with the comic book guy from The Simpsons. The Well, actually, who corrected everybody every time. And we have a phrase at the game store... Um, that we use when we're talking about it called don't yuck somebody else's yum. <laughs> if somebody, something makes people happy, don't harass them because they're found something that they're happy about. Unless it's high ho Cheerio. Unless it's high ho Cheerio. Then I'm sorry, you know, the rules are off at that point. Kick them out. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> but um, we, we try to go by the don't yuck somebody else's yeah, yum. For sure, man. And, and that really, when we kind of defined that as a phrase at the store of how we were going to behave, I think that really clicked in place for a lot of my employees. Mm-hmm. Just because it's not your jam doesn't mean somebody else isn't having a great time, especially 
like I was saying earlier, Munchkin, a lot of people look down on. Like, I would never play Munchkin. Well, if somebody's having fun, who cares? Let them have fun. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that's important with the other games we were talking about. You know, Monopoly's not my thing. Yeah. A lot of people have a good time playing it. My wife really likes to play it. Um, that's not to say no one can enjoy these games, right? I play yeah. I play all these games with my kids. I play Clue. I play Trouble. I play all of them. Um, there's lots of fun to be had, right? Yeah. There's just... Yeah, my friend Christy is a huge Monopoly collector. I think she's got 90 different versions of oh, Monopoly. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, it's that's her thing. She loves more. it. That's the point. Like, there's things you like about it. There's there's different ways to experience that kind of thing there's more out there yeah and there's so many games coming out right now that everybody can find something that is good for them yeah you know a lot of a lot of times what we see is we see parents coming in with their kids and the kids are super excited to being at the at the game store and the parents are so confused of what's going on what do we do here why are their kids excited they really you know, it, it's it's such an eye-opening experience to them. I, I can't tell you the number of times I've heard, I had no idea there, this many games existed. Yeah. Because they've only ever seen TV commercials for the same seven games we all grew up with. So what's, in that situation then, what's something you recommend to somebody as like a, a first step into this modern board gaming world? What's, what are some ones that come to mind? I have my own, but I, I'm interested to hear what you have to say. Well, the, the big thing that we do, I think, that's different from a lot of game stores is we have a rental library. So we can talk people through different games, and we've got demos, and we'll show them some basic level games. And it's easy to demo some card games and some of the easier board games that we have. But we also encourage them to use our rental library, too. So they can um, rent a game for one night. It's, it's roughly 10% of the price of the game. And if they come back the next day and they say, this was not good for our family, we just put it back on the shelf, and they're out no more than if they had rented a movie. Mm-hmm. But if they love it, and they come back, they're like, this was amazing, we had such a good time, we want to play it more, then we'll sell them a brand new copy of the game, and we'll take that 10% that they already paid off the price. So it's like a try it before you buy it. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, a lot of board games are 20 30 50 70 $100, and I would rather have somebody know that they like the game and want to play it before they commit to that much money and they, they maybe they have sour grapes later about it. Yeah, for sure. And so that rental library, it was it's not our idea originally. It's a friend of mine, Lynn, that has a board game a store up in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And she had this program, and I was like, this is an amazing idea. And I said, Lynn, can I steal this idea? She's like, go for it. And yeah. so, yeah, it was so amazing. That's actually how I found one of the games that would be on my list as a as an entry into it is King Domino, and that's actually how I discovered that was renting it from you guys. Yeah, um, twenty seventeen game of the year. Yeah, it's it's really solid. Um, you want to talk about how that works? A sure. Bit? King Domino is a it's a quick game, and that's one of the reasons why a lot of people like it because you can play the entire game with four people in a half an hour. And so if you just wanted to play over lunchtime, which I know there's a huge board game club at State Farm here in town where they get together at lunch, they play games, they're always looking for those, can we get a game in, get some food and get a game in during our lunch hour. But King Domino, the basics is each person is drafting tiles. The tiles are two-sided like a domino. 
And just like a domino, when you're playing dominoes, you can only play a five on a five or a three on a three. In King Domino, you're building out your kingdom, and so you can play a a, a fields on a fields or a sea on a sea or a mine on a mine. And you're trying to build this symmetry um, because the way you score is some of those properties, particularly if there's a village on it, have crowns on them. And so you take the number of squares in a field, like so let's say you had five squares in a field and you had two of them that had three stars on each one of them, you would do five squares times six crowns and that'd be 30 points you would score for that. Yeah. So that's you're trying to build out this property, but you have to piece it all together correctly because if you can't follow the rules of domino and you get forced to draft a tile that doesn't fit in your city, you just have to discard it. Yeah. You have to get rid of it. Very simple. You can teach kids very very basic math on there. And I've taught six-year-olds how to play this. Yep. My, and my it's a half an hour and you're out. Five. Yeah, yeah. There's such a cool... The thing that I, I liked about it, I liked the tile laying and matching mechanic. That was neat. The thing I liked it the most is the way that you draft the tiles. Yeah. So, um, if you're playing with four people like we usually do, you... Um, the, the tiles that have the crowns on them are more likely to have a higher number. So when you're drafting, you put them in numerical order. And if you choose to draft the tile that has that high number, good for you for that round. But next round, that might mean you get the last pick. And if you get the last pick and it doesn't fit, you're SOL at that point, right? Yeah, yep. So you have to... It's not just like you're randomly grabbing tiles out of a bag. You have to make that choice of, do I want to... Do I want to pick the most valuable one right now, sacrifice a turn next time, or maybe I'm going to take the least valuable one, but then I get to pick first next time. Then I get my pick of anything that's coming up. Yeah. It's a really interesting tension. It's a little confusing at first, the first couple rounds you go on it, but again, I played it with, when I first got it, my son might have even been four. I was playing with a four, six, and eight-year-old at the time. After going through one game, they totally understood what was going on. Yeah. Um, it's very accessible, very different, but it's it's. Uh, and a, a lot of those games reinforce. You'll you'll find that the studies have continually showed over and over again that a lot of these games reinforce education outcomes mm-hmm. like basic uh, multiplication and king domino. Yeah. And spatial relationships, and those are all things that teachers are taking extra time to try to teach kids of how to visualize and put things in perspective, how to logically make decisions, and what are the outcomes of their choices. And or even games how like this reinforce it. How to just even look ahead one turn, right? Yeah, that's a great lesson in that because that's that's what they did first. They're like, what? That one's worth fifty. Why wouldn't I just? I'm always going to grab the fifty, and then the very next turn, like, wait. I don't want to go last. I don't want to pick last. Then I just get whatever everyone doesn't want. That's not fun. Yeah. Immediately learn the lesson of like, yeah, in games you gotta you gotta play one move ahead. In what you're picking very important. Um, no, everyone it's, plays it's the a, whole it's time. A, it's fixed a great number one. rounds. Uh, yeah, neat neat graphics, like fun to look at. It's just it's pleasing to put your little kingdom together. You know, it just it feels. It good. is, and they've made a couple yeah. expansions for it that just yeah. add on a couple of little twists on the game that make it really, really solid as well. Yeah. Yeah. That same vein of that same style of quick to play, easy to teach, but lots of strategy to it in the future is Splendor. Yes. And Splendor is yeah. in my top five f- 
favorite board games of all time. I've God, I played hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of rounds of Splendor over it's time. It's so tight, man. It's such a it's such a like yeah. It's such a tightly made game. It, in Splendor, the, the the theme of the game is that everybody is playing as gem merchants, and you acquire gems, and then you use those gems to acquire means of transportation or production in the future. And that sounds like complicated, but it's really you're just buying cards. And then um, eventually the cards you start to buy have victory points on those cards. First one to 15 points wins the game. So the again, you can play an entire game with four people in a half an hour. Yeah. And you're... Um, I, Splendor, to me, illustrates another aspect that you that you see in a lot of Euro games is uh, that you're not directly competing with each other. There's some degree to which you're maybe going after the same card or maybe you grab a card because you think your opponent wants it, but whenever I start getting into that kind of stuff, I always lose. Like, you you just got to focus on, okay, what am I building out this time? I'm going after reds this time. Going after reds and greens. I'm going to focus on those. I'm going to play my game, build my stack up. And... There, there's some limited interaction players, but basically you're you're building your own thing. You're building your own gem trading. The official term for it is tableau. A tableau. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. your official term when you get your collection out in front of you like that. Is a tableau of here is my engine that I have created to do future actions and subsequent turns. Yeah, yeah. So that's cool. Same way in King Domino. There's some. Some like kind of grabbing stuff from the middle when you're you're getting the tiles, but largely you're just saying which one of those is valuable for me, and I'm gonna go ahead and get those and build mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah, yeah. And one of my favorites in from um, just the last couple of years is Space Base, because earlier you were talking about that one of the least fun aspects of a board game, especially if you're eliminated, is waiting for other people's turns. And one of the reasons why I like Space Base is it's 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 really at, at its heart, each person is building out their own space station, and but it's an engine builder. So it's very much a if this then that sort of a game. And it starts with a dice roll. So if I roll two dice, um, I can, let's say I roll a four and a five. I can choose to use them as a four and a five, or if it's more beneficial to me, I can activate them as a nine instead. But at the same time that I'm making decisions on my space station for what I want to do, you're looking at your space station and you're choosing, does a four and a five benefit me or does a nine benefit me? So every time somebody rolls the die, there is an action that everybody at the table can take depending on how they built out their space station and it may be that you have nothing on the four and the five but the nine you've got something going so bam i'm going to activate the nine or you might not have built out any of those numbers and you just miss your round your turn this round Mm -hmm. Um, which of course with two dice means that the the uh, six seven eight are of course the most powerful numbers in the game and I've you, heard of that one. Yeah, you get a lot of options of how you're going to build it out. And, and you can even do fun things, too. Like, let's say I activate a six, but one of the, the cards that I have on the my turn when I activate it points to the left. Well, that means that not only do I get to do everything that's on the six, but I get to also do everything on the five as well. 
And if the five has a card that points to the left, then I can do everything that's on the four as oh, well. So, so I can start them all together. Chain reaction, yeah, like yeah. a like a Rube Goldberg machine, and just kind of string everything together yeah. and just keep going until the engine runs out of power. Is that um? So you said there's dice in that. Mm-hmm. Is there cards in that too? Is yeah. that where the things come? You're selecting the cards that. Yeah. Uh, ultimately, you you um, you're on your turn. You're trying to generate money. Um, you can either generate money or victory points. And if you're generating money, you can use the money to buy better cards to upgrade your space station. Yeah. And each upgrade goes and you pick and choose the cards you want that go in the slots from 1 to 12. Because um, since you can s- split the dice out, I could activate a 1 and a 5 or the 6 by adding them together. Okay. So, you know, you lean heavily to the higher probability numbers, but... Um, you're building out your space station and upgrading each one of your 12 docking bays to do the most efficient first one to 40 points wins. Yeah, cool, cool. Um, I forgot to mention, going back to Splendor, one of the things, it's definitely coming out as we talk that I'm a very tactical, tactile, I guess I'm a tactical person too. I'm a very tactile person with these things. Those, um, those chips that you collect in Splendor, yeah. those little poker chip type things, that's how you, every time you pick up basically three of those as your your money for that round you're choosing which one of those colors you want to get they're just so perfectly weighted i just love having those things in my hand clinking them together and that's again when i go to play with my kids playing with six seven ten you know that age range they really appreciate just like i've got this thing in my hand right i've got this collection of money and cards it's 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 not something they get when they're playing on the Switch or on an iPad, right? No, you're you're 100% right. That that tactile feeling is is very important. And Splendor could have absolutely used the little cardboard punch outs yeah. for those um, those gems, and it would have been a completely different game. Instead, they made the decision to go with a medium weight, you know, 12, 13 gram poker chip. Um, colored correctly for opals or sapphires or rubies yeah. or diamonds and chocolate. that the, it, br- the brown one's chocolate in my house just so it's you know. chocolate yeah, it's it, not onyx no one's telling me it's onyx it's, it's <laughs> definitely it's 100% chocolate <laughs> <laughs> it, well the picture does look like a little square little, little of like a Hershey bar yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean if I'm building up my empire and someone's offering me chocolate I gotta <laughs> go for that too but anyway That's hilarious um but but it would have been they could have made it a less expensive game by yes. saving the weight of production and shipping and everything else, and it it you know it was up for game of the year it didn't win the game that won is not good so I wish this would have won instead, but um, uh, it would I don't think it even would have been up for game of the year if they had substituted in like little cardboard punch outs I don't think it would have had the same feel yeah yeah and the premium components sometimes can make all the difference between a winner and a loser well and that's and that's people get sticker shock with these games right oh my gosh you're gonna pay fifty dollars for one game like what are you doing but do you want the quality pieces that do you want cheap plastic stuff do you want cardboard do you want things that are gonna fall apart or do you want like a quality material that you can have and use and appreciate um for, for some people, for some people, it's not a consideration. I understand that, but for me, hundred well, percent. Here's how I look at it: is um, I am a huge movie nerd. 
right? I love going to the movies. I love a great, well-done well cinematic experience. The sound and visuals got to all play together and, and come out to make that experience. But going to the movies is $13 a ticket right now. So if you and a significant other, now you're $26, you get some a drink and maybe a popcorn, you're 35 bucks, right? In your case, take three kids with you, and now you're a $70 experience, right? Yeah. So you can do that, and you've got a movie where you're at for an hour and 45, maybe two hours for most movies. The same amount of money you could spend on a board game that if you play it four or five times, you have broke even with the movie theater. Um, and a lot of games, if you're if you're loving them, like a, especially a fast game like a King Domino, that has probably been played forty or fifty times in your household yep. at a half an hour a shot. You know, yeah. I mean, it really, if you think about it from a, a, a money perspective to the reward and gratification you're getting of that ongoing over and over and over again. Yeah. That's really where board games shine. Yeah. For the the bang for the buck is so much higher on a board game than music, than movies, than so many other forms of entertainment. Yeah. Go to Mass VR. Um, I love Mass VR. It's a really cool experience to go and do, but that's twenty five bucks a person for a half an hour. Okay, so I can get a really good board game for for the hour I spent with Mass VR that I'm going to play a half dozen times and have a great time being social with my friends at the same time. Yeah. the uh, And not that you would necessarily buy it with this in mind, but the resale holds up pretty good on them too as long as you take care of them. Um, Depending on the game. Yeah. Right. But, but again, if you have quality pieces, yeah. if you buy Splendor, those chips aren't going to fall apart, right? So uh, you... Um, you, it's also something you have you can play for a while you put it on the shelf you take it back out again maybe maybe five years goes by you, you have a new group of friends you break it out right well and there's been a big trend in the last you know call it five years of escape room games and murder mystery games and the escape room games you know you go do an escape room everybody's out you got six friends everybody pays 25 bucks or you can buy an escape room game that simulates that experience at the store, the Exit Games, one game of the year, and they have a bunch of different adventures, and they're $15, but really you can only play them one time. And what I tell people, I say, look, don't think of it as paying $15 for a game you can play once. Think of it as $15 for a night's entertainment. You know, yeah. if you invite another couple over, um, do a little potluck, bottle of wine, six-pack of beer, and everybody's got an hour of entertainment while you're sitting and hanging out with your friends. It's actually a fairly cheap experience, especially if you compare it to going out to dinner or going to the movies or things of that nature. Yeah. So if you look at it holistically across all of your options, and then a lot of those escape room games you can gift to somebody else. Once you know the answer, you're probably not going to play it again. That's a good point. Gift it yeah. to somebody else. Yeah. The other one that's on my list, if someone's interested in getting into modern games, is Ticket to Ride. Classic. I, uh, I, it's, again, very accessible. It's so much fun to put those trains together on the thing. Um, I mean, it is turn-taking. You're not going simultaneously, but the turns should go pretty darn quick on it. They um, do. Ticket to Ride is a, it looks more like a traditional board game of a big board. And it's, you know, Ticket to Ride America is, of course, the United States. And so the board never changes because the United States pretty much stays the same. And you, everybody is a train company, you know, uh, business owner. 
and you get a ticket that says you have to deliver a passenger, pick them up at City A, drop them off at City B. And um, there's a process which you acquire train cars and you're trying to match them to the different colors on the board to move the people across. For every uh, ticket you successfully complete, you get positive points. But any ticket you take that you don't complete, you get negative points, which I think is also a very good thing to show that don't get greedy, right? Because yeah. it'll take you down. Um, and but it's also a, you have to take some risk in order to get the reward there too. So you choose how many of those tickets you pick up. So you, I, I play with some players where it's like they're getting two tickets, they're sticking with them. Other people are picking up five, six, seven tickets because they're just like, I'm going to go everywhere I can, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you can choose how you want to play it. Yeah, and it, you know, a lot of times what I, I tell people, I'm like, okay, Catan is considered board gaming 101, Carcassonne's 102, Ticket to Ride is 103, and Dominion's 104. Okay. Those okay. four games will give you the background of so many mechanics that when you pick up a different game, you'll be like, oh, it's like Ticket to Ride, but with this. Or, oh, it's like Carcassonne, but this time we're going to switch this up a little bit. And all four of them were Game of the Year winners at various various different years. And and Ticket to Ride is it's just classic. It's, yeah. I think um, this year we just got Ticket to Ride Europe the 15th anniversary edition of that so the original ticket to ride i think must be 17 this year 18 something like that yeah it's very fun um and it's definitely fun because you you keep your you keep your goals secret from everybody else Mm -hmm. people don't know what cities you're trying to connect and so you may be really just saving up for this one path and then that time when you're gonna you just want to connect like you know louisville to nashville and you're about to put that down, and the person right before you takes that. And once they take that route, you can't take it anymore. Somebody already owns it. Then you get to, like, ah! But then you got to reroute around it. Yeah. So there's definitely, like, people running into each other, but it's rare that it's rare that you know that you're blocking somebody. It's usually just like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to put that there, and then it's inconvenient to the other person. So it's that same dynamic of healthy competition, but it gets rid of a lot of the maliciousness that can come with someone intentionally knowing that they're going to screw you over if they if they block that in there. And it's a game where everybody's in it till the end. So there's nobody yeah. eliminated. Um, everybody's in it till the end. And so everybody's having at least a, some level of enjoyment. Yep. You may realize, like, okay, I'm so far behind, I'm not going to win this one. But you're still in it, you're at the table, you're having fun, and you're not eliminated like Monopoly and sitting in a corner. Yeah, yeah. So those are like your level 100 games then, and then you can definitely go to some of the more complex ones. Um, oh, you can get into some super crunchy yeah. games, you know. So uh, I've been uh, I've been playing a lot of Gloomhaven recently. Oh man, have you ever played any of that? I have played the first three adventures out of Gloomhaven. Now, okay. just so everybody knows that the box that Gloomhaven comes in it's very large. It's 23 pounds. <laughs> I've, I've sold some and had to ship them. The box for Gloomhaven weighs 23 pounds as a board game. Yeah. And it's it's a style of game that we call a legacy game where decisions you make each time you play can change the possible options you have in the future. There are repercussions in Gloomhaven to, if you do A, B may not even be available. You might have to script straight to D because you change the setup and the layout yeah. of the game. And and there are 91 possible scenarios to finish a game of Gloomhaven. 
um, the, the choices you make, you may not play more than 70 of them and still be able to win the game, but there are 91 possible scenarios. Each scenario, through. usually with my crew, takes us, uh, well, we usually take our time. We're, we're very analytical people, so we're like agonizing over every choice. You could probably do a scenario in an hour. We usually take closer to two hours, so if you're talking 70 to 90 scenarios, it's a big time commitment to spend on that thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I it's, don't even it's know also the go. thrill, the victory yes. of with your friends, you know, because it's, it's cooperative. Yeah, yeah, it's a cooperative game, and it's it's not only did we beat the scenario, but did we beat the scenario while getting the maximum amount of points and loot for that scenario? Yeah. So it's that's where the analytics come in. Is can yeah. we beat it? Yes. Can we beat it and get all the stuff? That's it, a whole different question. It's, it, would, it would probably take 20 minutes just to explain how the game works. I, I would my, my summary for people is we have, a, we have a, a full-size dining room table. For the three of us, we take up three-fourths of it with just all the little stuff. There's just stuff everywhere. There's little counters and tokens and penalties and monsters and things we flip over and... Um, it kind of has its roots positioned. in a little bit like a Dungeons and Dragons game. It seems game like a Dungeons and Dragons Where you can, yeah. as your characters do good, you can level them up with better equipment and better abilities and things of that nature. Yeah. And one of the cool things is, is as you are going through the game, decisions you make may open up, like open up this box now. There are boxes that come with the game that are sealed shut. And so the thrill sometimes of unlocking and opening a new box and seeing yeah. what's in the box. It's a new monster or a new character or a new ability. I just got or a new tool. Yeah, I got this little, like, I reached level five. I got this little staff I get to carry around with me now. It's, it's yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then I'm like, I, I open that at the end of our level, and we're not scheduled to play for another week. And I'm like, man, I can't wait till Monday because I want to see what this staff can do, right? It's, it's very cool. Um, See, now we gotta, we got now I'm gonna riff off that a little bit. Yeah. We have a game that's been very possible, successful at the store called Zombie Kids. Okay. And I Zombie Kids too. is yeah. aimed at kids. And it is the ba- the theme of it is that um, all the adults have turned into zombies and the kids are trying to keep themselves protected by sealing off the school, keep the zombie adults outside, and keep the kids inside safe. And the cool thing about it is, again, it's another one of these legacy games that every time you play it, um, you get a sticker of, if you get a little, you get a sticker to put in the book that says, if we won, we get a little, like, championship kind of trophy cup. But if you lost, there's you have to put a brains on there because the zombies ate your brains, <laughs> okay? And every five levels that you play, you open up a new envelope. In the there's 13 envelopes in the game, and each time you open up an envelope, it gives you either a new ability, a new hero, or a new monster to put in the yeah. game. So it's a game that parents can play with their kids or siblings can play amongst themselves up to four players co-op, where there's a progression and the game doesn't stay the same over and over and over again. It keeps evolving, and it's basically teaching the, rule, the rules to the kids one rule at a time. So that by the time you open up all 13 envelopes, it's a much more complicated game than what you started with. Um, but the kids only learned it one rule at a time and then played five rounds to reinforce each rule. And so it makes for a completely different experience. It makes it so parents don't want to poke themselves in the eye yeah. because this kid's game never changes ever, ever. 
and it makes it so that we don't have games. You know, we see kids that just want to keep playing because they want to keep going to see what the next envelope is. Yeah. Um, so it's not a game that gets stuck on a shelf and never comes off the shelf. Yeah. I, I think I'm actually going to bust that out. I have been playing Pandemic Legacy with my kids. Oh, nice. Um, Especially last year. Such, we sold well, a ton of it last year. Yeah, it's very topical. Um, although I have to admit, when I when we lose, which is more often than not, it's a very hard game for people who don't. It's a, it's a cooperative game, and it simulates us trying to fight against a global pandemic outbreak, which used to seem very theoretical until recently. The times when we lose hit me really hard emotionally. Especially since we named one of the diseases COVID. So, um, Did you really? Uh, yeah, you get to name the diseases, so yeah. we, we named it COVID. Um, it's it's but, basically the CDC running around the world trying to fight off these diseases. And, and each game is one time. month of the year. So yeah. you play 12 games to simulate playing 12 months of the year. Yeah. And decisions you make each month could affect all future months. It's There's tons of decisions. Like, where I'm ripping up... I'm, I'm ripping cards in the deck and throwing them away. Yep. Um, I'm, I'm like using pen to mark things on different cards or scratch out things on characters. Some characters, if they get damaged enough, they're just not playable anymore. You have to rip them up and throw them away. New tokens come out. I'm loving it. I'm having a good time. But what's inter- what I think is interesting about Zombie Kids, what you just said, is I've we've reached the point now we're halfway through the year and it's gotten to be too complicated for my children to have fun playing it with me. It's mostly like me explaining what's going on, and I'm like, so, do you think you want to cure Jakarta or Sydney? And they're like, I, I don't know anymore, Dad. Like, I don't want to spoil what's going on, but there's basically zombies at this point, and that's when things got too complicated for them. So I, I still want them to have that experience. They want to be in there. They want to do it with me, but it, it's too hard. And so I, I think... I guess I want to affirm people that there are these games... Wingspan's another one very popular. Gloomhaven. Um, you know, things that you might hear people doing, but they are ex- extremely complicated and rule heavy, and you kind of got to work your way into them. And so if you have an experience with a group and they're playing one of these and you're in over your head, like, there's ways to work yourself into it, right? Well, and that's, that's one of the things that we do at the game store very well, I think. You know, we refer to the staff members at the game store as gameologists. And we do purposeful training of games every month for all the new games that are coming in to make sure that if you come into the game store and you say, we are brand new, we don't even know where to start, we're going to direct you to the right place. Or if you come in and say, we really love this game, maybe that game is we really love Splendor, right? then we're going to say, oh, if you like Splendor, let's look point you at this way because it uses some of the same mechanics, but it adds a little bit of complexity and some more directions to the game, too. And so it's, it's almost like a game concierge service of trying to put people into games that they're going to be happy with and enjoy. Yeah. And, then, and as we do that successfully, they come back and say, you know, I, I had a couple that was in yesterday that said, we really loved you directed us to Space Base, and we really love Space Base, and now where do we go from here that we like this this theme? Where do we go? And I, I set them up with a couple of new games, yeah, yeah. and I had them rent them first and say, take these two home, rent them, come back and tell me what you thought, and we'll go from there. So we try to build that that customized service to get people the right places for them, where they are with their family, with their friends group of whoever it is. Um, and that's different because... 
you know, I know and you know that almost every game that I have at the game store is probably cheaper somewhere online. However, the service and the experience of coming to the game store is saying this is a direction to go next is something you can't get online. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of people will pay a little bit more for a game to get the right game for their group. Yeah. This is the last time I was at the store, we ran into each other. Two, two great things happened. One, you directed me to this. Oh, I haven't played it yet. Mountain? Is it somewhat like an HP Lovecraft-themed... Like, Mountain Madness? Mountain Madness, yeah. And you were like, hey, there's this one as a co-op game, and as you progress up the mountain, um, it starts co-op, but then everyone starts kind of going crazy and acting really erratically, and the goal is to try to get up in the mountain without like killing each other. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, this sounds like my type of game. I like this. I never would have... I never would have looked at that game before. You know, I'm not sure how the boys are going to react to that one. That might be with your gaming friends. I'll probably friend, play with your, your my adults. adult friends. Yeah. yeah, that's probably a little over their head. The other funny thing that happened was a um, Star Wars game that's real popular right now. Um, X-Wing? Rebellion? Rebellion, yeah. Okay. There was a guy in the story who was looking at Star Wars Rebellion, and you were talking to him about it and what it entailed. And I, I mentioned... Uh, that my two friends, John and Matt, I'll give you guys a shout out. John and Matt, who I, I play games with, are, are really into that right now. So I said to the guy, I was like, hey, just so you know, two friends, like, really into games. Uh, they've just been raving about how good this is. And he said, well, did they go to, like, MIT or something? And I said, well, one of them is an engineer. That's true. <laughs> but John, right? John, yeah. yeah. I was like, John is an engineer, but don't let that scare you off. <laughs> Matt delivers, uh, he, he delivers sandwiches for Jimmy John. So, like, you can, uh, he did have an actual science degree, though. So, I mean, like, yeah. it. Uh, um, yeah, Rebellion is an interesting game because it's, um, it's part of a new wave of game called asymmetric games. Most games, everybody starts off equal. Well, if you think about the Star Wars movie, there was the massive empire and a scrappy little rebellion. Yeah. And so in Star Wars Rebellion, the empire is trying to, if you're playing as the empire, you're trying to find and smash this annoying rebellion. And if you're playing as the rebellion, you have very limited resources, but you can hide on different planets of the galaxy to, and you're trying to survive long enough to get your message out there about what an evil mess the Empire is. And so it's this, it's who can outlast the other person as you're bouncing around the galaxy trying to figure this out. It's a really yeah. interesting mechanic. Yeah. And we've seen a bunch more asymmetric games come out after that. I just played one uh, based on Watergate where like I was the press and the op- opponent was Reagan administration and it like there was a power dynamic of us trying to like it was basically like a game of tug of war trying to like I was trying to uncover evidence and he was trying to um, hide evidence but there was definitely a power imbalance there with that game too that yeah we just cool. got one up we just got one in called lawyer up and one person's the defense uh, attorney and the other person is the prosecutor and it's um, you have to go through like the jury pool of who you're gonna have on the jury who's not which evidence is admissible, which evidence is not, as each person's trying to build up their case. Yeah. And there's the original game is a modern setting, but then there's an expansion that takes you to the Salem Witch Trials. Um, so really, really interesting kind of different ways to go about it. And yeah. anything can be a game anymore. But I, but I think that guy's reaction to the Star Wars one is exactly what we're talking about. That's probably not, that's not the right way to get into the 
genre, to the hobby, right? Just no. go ahead and grab the hardest That's one. That's not a 100 level game. Yeah. That's uh, you're jumping right into Work senior level classes at that point. And you guys are available to to coach people through that and to build them up and we do it all we demo so many games and we talk about especially with parents coming in with this lost look on their face (laughs) um you know my kid came home with these pokemon cards what do i do now and um you know the last two weeks uh last year's kindergartners spent most of the year if not the entire year being remote and so now they're in first grade at school and their buddies have Pokemon cards and the parents are completely lost with what to do, right? How do we do Pokemon? What's this game about? And so we spend a lot of time educating parents too about what's going to be appropriate, what's not, where to spend your money, where to avoid spending money. Yeah. And we try to be as honest and upfront with people too to say, this is a giant waste of money. Don't do this until he's old enough to understand the rules and play the game. Because a first grader is not going to understand how to play Pokemon. Yeah, yeah. You know, realistically, you need a solid third grade reading level to play Pokemon as a game. Until then, kids just like the fact they're shiny cards. They just like the cards, yeah. And they or like they're, to talk they're from about, the cartoon. Yeah, or like, you know, this is a certain rarity and there's things that they can do with them. But um, there's... It, my my biggest advice with Pokemon is you probably have a friend who has an entire shoebox full with about a thousand Pokemon cards that their kids bought and didn't use. And so before you buy anything, just like blast out on social media, like, hey, my son wants to do Pokemon. Can I buy some cards off somebody? And you'll you'll probably have a large number, a starter box just delivered to your door. Um, that's probably that's, very true. That's I, good advice. And, and then again, like you said, not to say don't spend money on them, but wait until they get to the point where they're actually playing it before you... Because you can easily spend $100 on some Pokemon. Without even blinking. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's very much there's a reason why it's called a collectible card game. Yeah. And like anything collectible, it's easy to spend a bunch of money in there. But And then it's all about, you know, we try to teach kids about taking care of their stuff and not tearing it up. And so then, you know, you got to spend some money on some basic protective sleeves and a box to put them in to keep them... Yeah. You know, it, it, it kills my soul a little bit every time I see somebody come in with a big bundle of cards that are just got a, two rubber bands wrapped around them. Yeah. Those rubber bands just tear those cards up. Yeah. But I, I get the same confused look all the time for Dungeons & Dragons mm-hmm. because every high school in Bloomington Normal, most of McLean County actually at this point, has a Dungeons & Dragons club. And so parents come in all the time like, my kid joined the club and now they need a handbook or something. We're like, okay, come over here with us. We're going to walk you through. Here's what they need. And then this is what they're going to want. So you're ready for the wants. But here's what they need to actually participate in Dungeons & Dragons. Player's handbook, set of dice, notepad, and a pen. Yeah. Yeah. But they're going to want all this other stuff. So just be aware of the difference between needs and wants. So we spend a lot of time educating parents. Yeah. But to, to me, a motivational thing, too, of getting into this is then being able to teach others about things and being able to introduce them to things. I, I, uh, there's a board game reviewer on YouTube called is it Shut Up and Sit Down. Yeah. Sit Down and Shut Up. The British guys? Yeah. Yeah. Camera, which way it goes. I think it's probably Sit Down and Shut Up. But anyway, they do great reviews. And he did one, just like a half-hour treatment of how to introduce a board game to somebody. And things like starting off with the story of the game. Putting them in the, like, why are we playing this game? What's going on here? What's the scenario? Um, walking them through some sample rounds. 
uh, really knowing the game well so that you're not like fumbling around in the rule book while you're trying to explain it to them right like that's also a great hosting experience to welcome people into your home and to say um, there's something you might not have done before but it's very enjoyable so if, if you'll do this with me I think we can have a good time right it's a um, well, and the can, board game companies are getting more savvy about this too so a guy I know um, his name is Rodney and he does an entire series called Watch It Played so if you get a game you can type in Watch It Played Wingspan and Rodney is going to have a video that pops up that says here's how you set up the board yeah, and yeah. here is how you play and he goes through um, those sample rounds with you about what the game and what the end goals of the game are so it's just as easy to set up a phone everybody watch the rules together and have a professional guy that's literally what he does for a living is he makes videos for companies and let him explain the rules to everybody knowing you've got a physical paper copy of the rules to fall back on as well yeah, yeah. as you go along and every year Rodney does a, a fundraiser for can, to keep making the games and every year I put in money along with a lot of other game stores too because we want him to keep making those easy yeah, to understand videos. Yep. I opened up a box yesterday for a game that I want to learn how to play called Lost Ruins of Arnak, which was up for uh, the Gamers Game of the Year this year. Um, just so everybody knows, every year at Essen, the big German convention we're talking about, there's always the Kids Game of the Year, the game of the year and then the gamers game of the year gamers games of the years are the more crunchy longer form ones that tyson and i've been talking about lost ruins of arnak is up there for game of the year gamers game of the year and when you open up the rule book the first thing it says is hey if you want to watch a video here's the url to an instruction video that we've got on youtube right now or keep reading the rules. Mm-hmm. So it makes it accessible for anybody, no matter how they learn best. Yeah, yeah. A lot of games also have apps or virtual ports for them as well. Um, so, so, um, I have found that to be a nice way. If I've, if I've played it a few times on um, physically, especially with like different people, but I'm, I'm not 100% confident I know all the things about it, I, like I have an app for Splendor, Puerto Rico. I just got the Gloomhaven game. Um, yeah, Roll for the Galaxy has a great app. Race for the Galaxy does too. Ticket to Ride. Ticket to Ride. Yep, I have that one as yep. well. Ticket um, to Ride's got a great app. And like, if I'm gonna play a board game, I want to actually like feel the pieces, right? Splendor virtually is just sort of like numbers and colors flipping around, right? But it makes sure that I understand the rules and understand how the game's supposed to be played well enough that when I'm in person I'm I'm not lagging behind or I'm able to kind of help other people too yeah so no, I do it all the time I have a subscription to boardgamearena.com and uh, one of the main reasons to get that subscription was they have games that are always getting introduced there that are new games coming out and I can learn the rules and sometimes, you know, Kelly falls asleep at 9.30, I'm up till midnight, I'm a late night owl, so I can learn the rules of a game at 11.30 at night when everybody else in the normal world is asleep and I'm still wide awake, I can learn the rules to the game so that when somebody comes to the store and asks me about it, then I know because I've played the game a couple times, I've learned the rules and I've played through it and I know the game now. Yeah, yeah. 
So, I still want the physical pieces too. For me, a big part of the board gaming experience is sitting at the table with my friends and hanging out. Yeah, yeah. I got people coming over tomorrow. <laughs> we finally, uh, we finally got <laughs> Matt and I finally got John to start using the Gloom, the Gloomhaven uh, app to track some of our monster stuff. Just because there was, there's just so much stuff to keep track of. But he, he was just like, I don't, I don't play board games to have an iPad next to me while I'm doing it, but. It got to be a little bit too much crunching things through, so we yeah. found a good middle ground with it, too. So, and uh, it's, it's yeah. interesting, you know, there are a lot of people, and I agree with John, most of the times, board games are my time to unplug from the rest of the world. But there are some games, um, as a for instance, the new Descent um, Legend of the Dark game, where the board game plays the bad guys, so that you and your three friends can then work cooperatively as the good guys playing the board game itself. So it it sets some ambiance with some kind of cool, creepy music going on, and it tells you what the, the board does, what the bad guys do in reaction to the actions that the good guys are taking. So it's a different sort of experience where you're combining technology to accentuate a board game. Another game that was super popular last year was... Um, uh, uh, Chronicles of Crime and it's probably the closest thing that you're going to get to an NCIS or a, or a CSI kind of crime drama experience and you use the app in almost an augmented reality fashion to you're checking out a crime scene but you can depending on which people you've already talked to, which suspects you've talked to, you might find new stuff in the crime scene that uncovers hmm. based on this augmented reality experience, too. So there's been some really interesting twists where they've took in a, taken uh, the technology and brought it into the board game yeah, world. Yeah, Well, I could probably spend another hour and 45 minutes talking through this stuff, but I know, you got, I know you're a busy guy. you got stuff to do. Um, so just... If there's one takeaway here for people, there's so much out there, so much fun to be had, uh, so many different kinds of games that you could be playing with the people in your life, young and old, and uh, so many ways to, to get into that. And uh, highly recommend going into Jamie's store, Red Raccoon, downtown. Talk to people there. They can get you set in the right direction. And, yeah, uh, it's, it's 100% what we do. Is We yeah. enjoy helping people find things that will make them happy. Yep. yep. You know, a lot of card games for our older customers, a lot of board games for our Gen Xers, a lot of miniatures games for our, our younger patrons. I mean, there, there is some generational differences there, and we can find something that will make everybody happy. Yeah. Very cool. Well, another place that can, has stuff that can make everyone happy is Little Beaver Brewery here. New menu. Come check it out. Always got 24 beers on tap from them and a variety of other breweries around. Different things you can check out here. Enjoy time with your family here as well. Always want to emphasize that. It's a family-friendly location. There's always Great food. kids here too. Um, inside and outside places. So you got to patio is amazing we, we started out outside until i started to get worried about whether i was gonna get sunburn or not because we didn't get a we didn't get a, a, a umbrella this Shaded time place yeah yeah as a redhead that's a real concern i'm with you man <laughs> northern european northern european uh skin guys stick together so. yeah <laughs> all right jamie be well thank you